Well, good morning to you today. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Just want to make sure that we've had our coffee. I don't really drink coffee, but anyway. Uh, we're going to get right to God's Word today. We do have a healthy portion of Scripture this morning. We have the Lord's Supper to follow. So uh, with no preliminaries right to it. Let me just tell you that uh, James Boyce, longtime pastor at uh, 10th Pres in Philly, uh, sees in Nehemiah, and that's where we are, he sees in these chapters in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10, respectively, today we're in chapter 9, uh, a three-part revival. A three-part revival, says Boyce, last week, uh, preaching and hearing the word. And uh, that was our, certainly our focus last year, uh, last week, as it is always. Uh, today, sorrow for sin and repentance and uh, that will be the emphasis of chapter 9. And then chapter 10, next week, a resulting change of life. So I, I've entitled the message today, Covenant Renewal Part A. Part B will be next week. It, chapters 9 and 10 really together. Uh, uh, the, the same setting. Following about two and a half weeks after the events of chapter 8 that we saw uh, where they left off, they just spent eight days together in the Word of God. They had this wonderful gathering we saw in chapter 8. I commend it to your reading. Uh, this wonderful gathering on day one. And then chapter two, leaders and heads of household got back together for more Bible study and decided to obey God's Word and to uh, enact again the Feast of Booths. And so it lasted a week. And so eight days, chapter uh, 8. And so chapters 9 and 10, this takes part about two and a half weeks later, J.I. Packer describes what we're about to hear as a national day of repentance and recommitment. National day of repentance and recommitment. So I'm going to read for us right now just the first section, the first eight verses. You will find this on your pew Bible on pages 475 and on to the next. Hear then God's word. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenanai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Petahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. 
you found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I would ask simply today that uh, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that you would cause your word to richly dwell within us today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're in the midst of a three-part revival among the people. The first half of the book of Nehemiah was taken up largely with the situation and the need to rebuild the walls of the city. And now in the second half of the book, chapter 7 to the end, they're reconstituting the people of God. And so uh, the, the wall was for their protection, and now they're repopulating the city. They're beginning to do that. They're returning to the word of the Lord. That's the important thing, and they're broken by it. We saw last week, chapter 8, they're, they're weeping. Uh, they're, they're grieving because they're cognizant of their own sin to such a degree that the, the Levites and the others have to calm them and have to hush them after a while and say, this day should be a day of rejoicing. You know, go and eat lunch and share with folks and make sure everybody has something and you know, look out for one another, but rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So here we have a section on corporate confession continuing and praise to God. Again, it's a couple of weeks later. And this is a community that is marked by repentance. In verse 3, they spend three hours in the word and then the next three hours in confession and worship. You know, and sometimes we're concerned about the length of our services and they were committed, they were devoted to this teaching and remaining under it. And when it describes the scene as saying that they are dressed in sackcloth, many of you will know that this is a ceremonial garment, uh, uh, very humble, plain clothing, on the level of, for us, like a burlap sack. Uh, and it's a sign of remorse, of great contrition for sin. And when it says that they had earth on their heads, uh, it doesn't mean that they're balancing earthenware pots or what have you. It means that they're continuing to lament and mourn and grieve over their sin. And so they're taking up a bit of dust from the ground and, and, and pouring it on their heads as they, they lament and wail and weep before the Lord in a, in a sign of their remorse over having grieved the Lord for not having kept covenant with him. As they hear the words from the book of the law, specifically Deuteronomy and, and all perhaps the first five books of the Old Testament and, and sitting under the reading of the word of God and having heard it explained a couple weeks prior, they recognize that they themselves have not been observing it. They've not been obeying the word of God and not only that, that's been the case for generations. So humble, plain clothing and, and this, this sign of humiliation um, and fasting was a part of it too. And we could compare this to the national revival of those mean, nasty old Assyrians 
a couple hundred years, 300 years earlier, as detailed in Jonah chapter 3. But part of what they do is they praise God too, right? Corporate confession, that's part of it, but also there is praise to God. Blessed be your glorious name, verse 5. Your honored and splendid name. And, and to, to invoke his glory, the Hebrew word kabod there, the, the significance, the gravitas, the weightiness, the heaviness of the presence of God in a good way. And they bless his name. They adore him with bended knee. They say that his name is exalted over all. His name is, is high and lofty. It is raised up above all others. And he's spoken of in the passage, the Lord only is God, verse 6. And that's reminiscent, of course, from the law, from Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all that you are, right? That's the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4. The exalted name of the glorious God, he's also referred to as creator in this passage. He's creator of, of heaven and earth, of heaven and, and the, the sun and the stars and the moon and all that is in the, and, and the angel armies of God, the hosts of heaven and all those on earth. He gives life and he preserves it. It's Jesus that holds everything together. It's not just gravity or laminin or DNA or, or, or what have you. It's Jesus. Colossians 1.17 in the New Testament says that Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. The Lord only is God. He's the creator. He's worshipped by the hosts of heaven. All of creation bows down. There's a psalm that says the trees clap their hands, so to speak, uh, met metaphorically. He is worshipped by the host of the angel armies. Of heaven, and he is a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who is morally pure, he is perfect, he is righteous and holy. And then our chapter goes into the covenant with Abraham, verses 7 through 8. And of course, you could go back to Genesis 12, the Old Testament details the covenant made with him. But part of what it says, you chose him, you brought him, you named him, you found his heart faithful. And so Boyce rightly observes that the emphasis is entirely upon God. It's on God's doings, God's action. He chose him, he brought him, he named him. There's a name change, right? From Abram to Abraham. Abram, exalted father to Abraham, father of a multitude. Genesis 17, he's told that uh, nations will come from him. Kings will come from him. And the Lord found his heart faithful. I, I think that means he found in him a believing heart because in Genesis 15, it says, Abram believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. So he found in him a, a believing heart, a faithful heart. And Abraham was justified by faith in the same way as we are. By faith in God and the Lord alone. By faith in the Messiah of God, of God's seed that was promised. 
And that's the gospel hope. Salvation by faith alone in God's Messiah alone. Our passage continues um, as we now look at some of the redemptive history in verses 9 through 21. So we're continuing in Nehemiah chapter 9 at verse 9. You saw, I'm going to read kind of quickly, just so you know. Uh, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from, for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But, so that's all about God's faithfulness, God's provision, right? Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Again, we see in this passage that God is alive. God is active. God is involved in the affairs of mankind. God is leading his people and providing for them and protecting them and extending mercy to them even though they don't deserve it. And in that regard, they're very much like us. Richard Pratt sees here a pattern of man's rebellion versus God's grace. Man's rebellion and God's grace in the exodus Rebellion and grace in the land, and rebellion and grace in the exile. Boyce points out simply that God was utterly faithful, and the people were not. So I've kind of outlined it there for you. We just read, number one, 
Exodus uh, under letter B, redemptive history. Number one, Exodus from Egypt, the Ten Commandments, uh, that special revelation, God making himself known, verses 13 and 14, right? And into the wilderness wanderings where they're led by the, the pillar of cloud and fire, verse 12, etc. But, but how it speaks of the Lord our God, quoting from Exodus 34 in this section, that God is a God of forgiveness. He, he pardons sin. The steadfast love of God, you know by now perhaps this is his chesed, his covenant love, his special redeeming love for his own people. And he won't forsake them. He won't leave them or abandon them. And this too is the gospel. Were we to fast forward in the New Testament, even if we are in 2 Timothy, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He is a great covenant-keeping God, slow to anger, merciful, compassionate. This is our God. They went to the point of making a golden calf, verse 18. That's idolatry due to their own pride and arrogance. And yet continually, year after year, the Lord provides, 15, bread from heaven. We'll talk about that more when we get to the table today. And especially, verse 20, his spirit. He provided even his spirit for them. And this is before the outpouring of, of the spirit on Pentecost. Number two in the outline under letter B, promised land, verse, uh, prophets and judges, Sin and exile, that's our next session. section. Verses 22 through 31. That's page 476. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted in themselves in your great goodness." Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, lower, lowercase s, We'll talk about that in just a moment. Who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried out to you, cried to you, you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey 
your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. I'm not going to go into hardly any detail here. The promised land, verses 22 through 25. The Savior's lowercase s, that's a reference to, an allusion to the book of Judges, right? Uh, who were sort of temporary deliverers uh, through whom God did great acts and got them out of straits time and time again. Um, the cycles of the judges are quite famous in, in the church of sin and rebellion against God and, and consequence for sin, judgment, and then the people of God groan and cry out under that. And God hears and delivers them. We see that time and time again in the book of Judges. Um, and yet his mercies and his compassion mentioned four times in the passage. Also mention of exile too, right? The deportations into slavery in Babylon is, is mentioned as well. And then the third part regarding redemptive history here. And with this, we're able to complete the chapter and to see covenant faithfulness on the part of God, number three, and also his people. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that in verse 38 when we get there. Verses 32 through 38, here again the word of God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. There, there's the two-part outline, really, of the whole chapter. You've dealt faithfully, we've acted wickedly. Verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, this is talking about the monarchy, the kingship, right, under Saul and David and Solomon, and then the divided monarchy. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. Slaves this day. Put, put your finger right there. Let's put a pin in it for a moment. Verse 36. We are slaves this day. So they're back in the promised land because of their failing to heed the prophets, not listening to God's warnings through them, and putting to death, killing some of the prophets. They're exiled, right? They go into slavery, not just for a short time, but for 70 years, right? Jeremiah, Daniel, and such. But then God uses a pagan king, Cyrus, the Persian king, says, y'all can all go home. Y'all can all go home and, and you know, celebrate good times. Come on, we, we get to go home. 
and they return to the land. And just as there are three waves of deportations into exile, there are three waves of returnees under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And now we're mid-5th uh, century B.C. But they realize that it's not the storybook ending that they had hoped for. It's hard. It was hard to rebuild the walls. It's hard to grow crops. and the, the, People are hungry. People have not been obeying the word of God. Some of them are taking advantage of and oppressing each other. They're intermarrying with the other peoples, and that was a concern too for reasons that we'll see. Let's see, the pin was in verse 36. We're slaves this day. So yeah, we're back in the promised land. We're back in the land that was you promised Abraham. But we are not free. We are vassals of Persia at this time. This isn't good. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. This isn't what we thought would happen. We're slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we're slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. We've got to pay taxes. It's hard. We're not free people. And then get this, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Part B next week. Chapter 10. We'll see more about the contents of this document. But we've got covenant faithfulness on the part of God. Verses 32 and 33, he, you know, it's only right that they should be judged, for they've sinned against him. They've dealt treacherously. They've not kept covenant. They've been wicked. They haven't listened to his word. They've served other gods. We're slaves. Great distress, experiencing the consequences of their own sins for at least some 300 years. And so that's why the overarching title for this sermon series is Restoration Continued. We saw restoration a year ago, the book of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, companion books. It was one book originally. And now restoration is continuing. It's moving forward with fits and starts. There's halts in the work. They're making some progress. Gee, under Nehemiah, this great governor who was a real mover and shaker, who, who was a, a man of God, he had a wonderful prayer life, and he was a good project manager, and they did what everybody thought was impossible. Uh, amidst opposition from without and from within, they got the wall rebuilt. mile and a half, two miles of, of wall around the city, up to eight feet thick. They got it done in 52 days. Earlier in the book of Ezra, we saw that they had relayed the foundation of the temple and things are, there, there's partial restoration, but it's not complete. 
That's because part of what God is teaching his people then is to look to Messiah. And part of what God is teaching us now is to look to Messiah. It's Jesus who comes and restores all things. And that's the gospel hope. Restoration is found ultimately in Christ. And you know what? We are in a parallel situation in some ways, even after the coming of Christ into this world. The parallel is this. They thought that the return to the promised land would just solve all their problems and everything would be hunky-dory. Come to find out, that's not the case. And we tend to think, well, gee, if I believe in Jesus and, and the Word of God and I'm a Christian, then things should be good. And we, we experience inner turmoil and we struggle with anxiety and then we dare to watch the news or read the headlines or get out in the world and see things and go, huh? I thought that God sending his son once at the right time, at the consummation of the ages, God sent forth his son. I thought that would just fix everything. And certainly by the righteous life, the sacrificial death, and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his cross work is finished. Redemption finished and uh, completed and applied. There's a... There's a book titled something like that. But we are in that in-between time. It's like a married couple at what happens after their ceremony at their own reception. They're married, but they're not enjoying completely. The marriage isn't consummated. They're not enjoying completely the freedom and, and the oneness and the intimacy of marriage. They're, they're at the wedding reception. It's what theologians call the already but the not yet, the now but the not yet. Restoration is found in Jesus the Christ, the Messiah of God. But the kingdom, although it continues, it has not yet been consummated and will not be until his return. Until then, what's going on? He's slow to anger abounding in loving kindness, giving people everywhere time to repent. Covenant faithfulness on the part of God. And also there is this request for the Lord to again take note of their situation. It says, behold, twice in verse 36, behold, God, don't you see? Look at, look at the dire straits we're in. God, don't you care? Look at the condition we're in. Look at the shape we're in. Take note of it. It's a request for further grace. God, for 40 years you were gracious to them in the, the wilderness wanderings. Our forefathers haven't. They, they've experienced some of the consequences of what they deserve, but it's been softened. The judgment has been mollified. They haven't gotten completely what they deserve. Take note of our situation. There's more confession, a request for further grace. And then, curiously, verse 38, which some Bible commentators think belongs to the next chapter, really. But I think it's a good preview of what we're going to do next week. 
We make a covenant in writing. It's a binding contract with God. There are numerous instances in the Old Testament of the renewal of God's covenant. The whole book of Deuteronomy, a second giving of the law, and the people singing back and forth the blessings and cursings of the law, and their responsibility to serve the faithful God and him only. How about in Ezra? I can't remember what chapter it is. I want to say chapter 9. Covenant renewal. Joshua 24. Covenant renewal on the part of the people of God. Over and over again, and here it is. They're recommitting to an agreement. And towards the end of chapter 10, it says, with a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. It's a, it's a recommitment. And they're serious about it. They reduce it to writing. It's a binding agreement. We'll have more on that next week. So a few thoughts for our consideration today. Um, implications from the passage for the church today and as we prepare our hearts to come to table. Uh, separation from foreigners is mentioned in verse 2. I'm going to save that for next week. Perhaps you've heard me say before, this wasn't about ethnicity, it's about idolatry, ultimately. It's about idolatry. In the short run, you could go, if you're a jotter, jot Leviticus 20, 26. And we'll see more about this principle of separation next time. Leviticus 20, 26. But what I want to look at for most of this last portion, is that the Lord continues to hold his people to account. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, it starts out so beautifully about running the race and fixing our eyes on Jesus and all, all that good stuff. But the bulk of the chapter is caught up with God's fatherly correction of his children. Uh, look at verse 5. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Uh, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, or corrects, right, every son whom he receives. The Lord continues to hold his people to account. And the rest of this section goes on to talk about God's fatherly discipline. And you need this in your life. It's a sign that you are an adopted son or daughter of God Most High. If you don't experience any of this, you've got to question whether you rightly belong to him. And of course, all discipline for the moment seems sorrowful. It's afterwards, afterwards, that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness and all that. Discipline. God disciplines those whom he loves. The people of old didn't get it, right? The people of Israel, they didn't get it. God, why are we experiencing this? God, you would use foreign kings? You wouldn't send the Assyrians to teach us a lesson, would you? You wouldn't raise up Hittites or or others. No, that that would never be. That, That doesn't fit with how 
we would do things. And they experience, they taste some of the consequences for their sin. And yet, and yet, our God who is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, who forgives sin, gives people everywhere time to repent, and that only by his grace. And it continues today. And there is his fatherly, loving discipline of his own. And so, for our consideration, the Lord continues to hold his people to account, and we ought to confess our sins. We ought to confess and we ought to forsake them. We seek to do a lot of confession in this church, every order of worship, every week. Charlie led us in it today. It includes uh, a time of a prayer of confession and assurance of pardon. Confession is to admit to God. In the New Testament, the word is homo, homo logeo. It's to say the same thing as God. To say that it's, it's wrong, it's, it violates his word, it's against him. But we also call it forgiven in Christ. We have assurance of pardon. We don't just end there groveling. Um, where is my order of worship? <laughs> Might be good if I had that. I'm so glad this morning for in the New City Catechism that we had the prayer. I don't know if you noticed it, but our answer to the question sort of ends with a bummer, right? Um, God's righteously angry with our sins. We'll punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and the life to come. Have a nice day. Go in peace. No, we need the gospel, friends. We need the gospel. We, we don't just need guilt. And punishment, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So our prayer says we can only plead the righteousness of Christ. Thank you that our punishment fell on him, that we have a substitute, that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is redemption full and free because of the blood of Jesus the Christ. The, one, the only one who is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy and does, did not deserve to be judged or to die, died in our stead, in our place. But then he rose triumphantly from the grave. We ought to confess our sins. We ought not only to confess them, we ought to forsake them. Stop sinning. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So in your parenting, your own parenting, as you discipline and correct your children or grandkids or kids and students in school, right? You catch Johnny and Billy fighting, you know, okay. All right, who started? He did it, he did it. All right, what, what, what really happened here? Well, he threw the eraser and I kicked him. Well, there's confession. Ain't no repentance. <laughs> There's no remorse with that. Well, now shake hands and be friends. Well, I don't know if we shake hands anymore. Sorry. Yeah, well, that's kind of forced fun, isn't it? <laughs> we ought to forsake our sins as well as confessing. You know, so we, we have confession of sin in our order of worship. We have, we'll have confession of sin as we come to the table. And how is it, according to Hebrews 12, 
that God's people, when they're experiencing God's fatherly, loving chastisement and correction and discipline, which is for our good, that we might share his likeness, that, that the peaceful fruit of righteousness might be demonstrated in our lives. How do we bear up under this discipline? It's because of Christ. It's the gospel, right? It's in Hebrews 12 at verse 3. Looking to Jesus, that's the key. Looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus to bear up that you might share his holiness. That's how you don't grow weary or faint-hearted, by considering him who shed his blood for us. One last thought. In our passage, you could jot down, look again in Nehemiah 9, at verses 26 to 29. 26 to 29. Four times it talks about turning, turning or returning. Turn, turn back. And what they're saying in this prayer in Nehemiah 9, the people of the 5th century B.C., are saying that their forefathers, in large part, failed to do so. They failed to heed the word of the Lord. They failed to return, to turn back to the Lord. But they're saying, the people of Ezra and Nehemiah's day, but we will. We are willing to turn back. We will return to you, O God. And as they sought God through repentance, so ought we. We need to repent of our sins. We need to depend on the Lord. And we need to bear fruit in our lives. Change that comes. Of course, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's only by God's grace. Uh, this passage mentions slavery. It says, look, we're slaves twice. We're slaves in our own land. We should be free and we're not. Slaves in a, in a negative sense. The Bible also uses slavery, this is the last thing, in a good sense, right? In the New Testament, Paul and Timothy, starting a, starting a new letter in the New Testament. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, voluntary slaves of God. Uh, I spent 14 years on staff with CRU, the ministry formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. And the founders... Uh, Bill and his wife, Vonette Bright, they made a contract with God. They signed a contract with God, surrendering control of their lives over to him, slavery in a good sense. And this is what Vonette says about it. Being a voluntary slave of Jesus Christ is what serving with faith is all about. A slave has no personal rights no desires to build her or his own kingdom. He or she is always seeking to work for the master's benefit. Let's pray. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. From our sins and fears, release us. Lord, you have released us from our sins because Jesus Christ paid the price once for all, once for all time. And we are free people indeed. 
but we do not wish to be left to our own devices. No, oh, you who will not abandon your people, you who do not desert us, you who will not forsake us, you who are faithful, though every man and woman and child be faithless, you who do not deny yourself, but who keeps your promises, you in whom, in Jesus, in whom every promise is yes and amen, We seek to recommit ourselves to you. We resolve to receive your grace and to walk with you by grace and to say to you, we'll go where you want us to go, do what you want us to do, and say what you want us to say. We don't want to be left to our own devices. We present ourselves, our bodies, to you as living sacrifices. Renew us by the power of your spirit, in accordance with your word, conform us to the image of your one and only son, Jesus. For we pray in his name, amen.